Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. My name is Joe Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by Jordan Angeli. Jordan, I almost amended that introduction. You know, we, we say to talk about Major League Soccer's on-field action. I wanted to upgrade that to like Major League Soccer's mm-hmm. insane, in- extremely chaotic on-field action. I decided to yeah. keep it simple and to keep it streamlined. Okay. But the soccer is crazy right now. Jordan, how's it going? Thanks for coming on the show, obviously. Uh, um, yes, you're welcome, always. <laughs> okay. And I think that that would have been a very poignant thing to say right now because it is wild, especially... In the East, um, it seems like we're going to have like a shuffle of the deck maybe five more times after each game. It's yep. going to be a different play, different teams in the playoffs. Maybe not the, the top three. Maybe Orlando's in that, that mix too. But man, it really can still be so many teams in that playoff contention. It is wild. And the East especially. I love that you mentioned yeah. that, Jordan, because one through seven in the Eastern Conference table right now, uh, that's New England, Nashville, Philly, Orlando, Atlanta, D.C., Montreal. Those are all, I, I think, good teams in a lot of respects. Yeah. And, and the teams underneath them as well, you've got NYCFC, who have now dropped out of the top seven, which blows my mind because I tweeted this out earlier this season after they beat the Revs a few months ago. Now I tweeted out like, this is the best team in MLS. And I, I genuinely believe that I don't, I don't believe that anymore. There's some crazy things happening. You've got NYCFC, then the New York Red Bulls who have just been showing NYCFC up in the Hudson river Derby games (laughs) recently. And then you've got the crew in 10th who still have an insane amount of talent. The East is stacked. And I think this is a year more so than than years past, really, that I can recall, at least, where I think one conference is so clearly better top to bottom, or at least, you know, top to eight, nine, ten mm-hmm. than the other conference, because the West has some very talented teams on the top of the table right now in Seattle, in Kansas City, even though they just lost to Vancouver on Sunday night and in the Rapids, who also lost this week. Seattle lost as well. Seattle All three lost. of those teams lost. So despite the recent form, uh, I think those three teams are excellent. But beyond that, I'm not necessarily sold on anyone in the West right now. So the East, I feel generally more confident about than the West. And I don't really remember feeling that way in the past. Jordan, do you feel like there's one conference that's stronger than the other, or am I just taking crazy pills? I think it shows up a little bit more this year just because of the way that the tables have been and how you're playing. Instead of just playing a home and away game against your same conference and then games against the opposing every team in the opposing conference right it's you're playing sometimes three or four games against the same team in your same conference like you were just talking about the the new york derby and it seems like they didn't play any and then they played them all in like a (laughs) three-week span and and those are two teams who are in that playoff race so you're you're gonna get better and you're gonna be challenged when you're playing better teams and I do think that that's what's showing up in especially the east is like all these teams who are like good enough to make the playoffs are all just right now in this battle and they just keep getting I think better at this time of the year when they need to get better which is exciting but also a little nerve-wracking for some of those teams who are sitting right on the edge they're keeping each other on their toes. They're keeping us on our toes. <laughs> Jordan, we're here to talk about an Eastern Conference matchup from this weekend. It was the first game of the MLS slate on Saturday. The Philadelphia Union and CF Montreal played to a 2-2 draw in Montreal. I really enjoyed this game, and I'm glad this is the one that we're digging into because we haven't talked a ton of Montreal this year. We haven't talked a lot of, of Philly either, and so we're going to have a chance to dig into both of these teams 
Jordan, let's start with Montreal and how they lined up. Would you be kind enough to walk us through Wilfred Nancy's shape and, and some of the personnel he used in this one? Yeah, uh, Nancy has been implementing this. I think it's a 3-4-1-2. That's what I would call it. It's like a 3-4-3, three, three, too. You could you could also throw that in there. Um, he, he plays Pantamus as goalkeeper across the back. It's Miller, Camacho, and Waterman. And then those those four real midfielders, the wingback, Chouanier, on the left-hand side, who's a homegrown from Montreal, really showing well. Maciel and Piet are centrally. Brogiard is on the right as a wingback. Mihailovic is that floater. He's that one of, um, he's like an attacking midfielder, sometimes presses up into the, the forward line. And then we have Milievich and Torres up top for Wilfred Nancy's team. I like the way that they play because one, this is a team who really wants to counterattack and they're very good in counterattacking. But I think we also saw in this game against the Philadelphia Union is that they're good with the ball too. And when they're trying to break down teams and I thought that their structure and how they broke down that four, four, two diamond of Philadelphia was really smart. So I don't know if you want to set up Philly and then we can talk sure. to, through some of the things that, that looked good for both teams. Absolutely. So the Philadelphia Union under Jim Curtin came out in a pretty familiar shape, right? They're in this 4-4-2 diamond. They've got the back four of, of Wagner and Elliott and Glesnes and Mbizo. And then uh, Leon Flack was playing as the six in this game with Ali Badoya to his right and Montero to his left. You had Paxton Aronson as that 10. And then Casper Shabilko and Quinn Sullivan up top. Some young starters in this lineup for Jim Curtin, right? Quinn Sullivan is 17. Paxton Aronson is 18. There's not a lot of, of age in some of these spots. There, of course, is some veterans here with Bedoya and Shabilko, and, and there, right. there's veterans along the back line and in midfield, too. But I've been encouraged to see the second wave of homegrown players coming for the union because we had we had Mark McKenzie and Brendan Aronson, and, and there was some Austin trustee talk in there as well, and now he's with the, with the Rapids after that trade. But it, it's awesome to see players coming up through the academy ranks still for Philly. You've got Jack McGlynn as well. I mean, there's, there's real talent in this group. I don't necessarily think that the young talent showed all that well in this game. This was probably not the one that you would want to cut up and put on the highlight reel. Uh, and, and a lot of that goes to Montreal as to why those players struggled so much, I think, and why the union in general, I would argue, struggled for much of this game. But that was Jim Curtin's general shape in this match. As the game actually kicked off, we saw that shape pretty clearly, not so much in possession because they didn't really have a lot of possession no, in this game, the Union. Yeah. In the first half, Jordan, yeah. CF Montreal had 67% possession. So we still saw those counterattacks that you're talking about. We saw Zachary Brogiard really get out and run, and he is electric when there's open space. So we saw him getting on the ball plenty on the right side for Montreal. But it was it was a pretty set tactical battle between Montreal's possession and Philly's defensive shape. And I think Montreal came out winning that battle. Yeah, I, I, I do think that, well, I don't know if you noticed this, throughout the game, I thought Philadelphia shifted their defensive shape so many different yep. times. Yep. And, and they started really with, when they're defending in that four four two diamond, it almost looks like a 4-1 with Flock being that one as the holding midfielder. Usually that's Jose Martinez, who they could have really used in this game, I think. Maybe they were just resting him. Um, and then the three in front are a little bit more flat across. It doesn't quite look like a diamond. Uh, and that is where Montreal was like, ding, ding, ding. We are going to get after that single pivot, the bottom of the diamond for uh, Philadelphia. And 
I wrote down in my notes, like their first, Montreal's first pass forward was almost always into that space next to the six. Yep. Whether it was Mihailovic popping in that space or if it was um, Milievich or Torres going in there, they were trying to get into that space and almost one, two around flock and just totally take multiple lines out of of the attack. And by doing that, they squeezed Philadelphia centrally and made them bring all these numbers centrally to try to defend that. And then their wing backs were open and they could get a lot of crosses in. So those are, that was one of the biggest tactics I thought saw from Montreal. And one of the reasons in the first 45 that they were so effective in keeping possession and getting forward against Philadelphia is because they really honed in on that that single pivot, and I think that was the reason why they shifted into a different defensive shape. Jordan, we are on the save wave, the <laughs> same wavelength right now. I noted the exact same trend in this game with Montreal overloading Leon Flack. He had a hard job, and yeah. I don't know that anyone really could have have executed a whole lot better because he was consistently being overloaded, either 2v1 or 3v1. I just saw so many moments. There's one in the 22nd minute where Montreal are using this midfield-minded front three, right? You had it as kind of a one-two shape. I saw it a lot of times as this like flat front three where there's just not a lot of... Flat is actually a really bad term to use there because it was so fluid and players would drop in. But the players almost had equal ability condensed. to drop in. Yeah, condensed yeah. and, and similar-minded players all playing across that front line. And however you want to think about that, the idea is that these players, Torres and Mihailovic and Milievich, they all have the desire to come in and get on the ball. Yeah. And so when you have three of those guys in the front line, and we don't see teams do this very often at all, really. When you have three of those like-minded players in similar spaces, you have so many opportunities to combine and to get on the ball between the lines and to receive and drive forward. And Montreal did that. In the 22nd minute, they have this this overload on Leon Flack. They're in possession. Philly's in that 4-4-2 diamond. It's Camacho who's playing as a center center back for Montreal. He's on the ball. And Montreal's front three are all just sitting behind or next to Leon Flock, and Flock can't deal with all three of them. So, so so Camacho threads it forward to Joaquin Torres, and Montreal are into the final third, just like that. Then two minutes later, I stopped writing these down because there were so many of them, but two minutes later, there's a very <laughs> similar action with uh, with Maciel this time playing the ball forward, Maciel being a part of that double pivot for Montreal. Maciel, Maciel playing it forward to Georgie behind Leon Flack. So they, they exposed him to the side, then they exposed behind him. He was he was running in circles because I don't know how you're supposed to keep up with three players at the same time. And Jordan, like you mentioned, I noticed at least that, that the union's defensive shape started to change right around that time, after about 25 minutes. So that's just one minute after the sequence I just detailed. Jim Curtin switched to what I, I think is more of a flat 4-4-2, where you had Bedoya and Flack as a double pivot. You have uh, Quinn Sullivan and Paxton Aronson then being the two wingers. So the 10 goes to the left and the, the right striker goes to the right. And then you've got Montero and Shabilko up top. I think it was a, a really smart and necessary change from Jim Curtin, who clearly saw he was being overloaded. Add another number into midfield, tweak your shape a little bit to condense space more. And it didn't solve all the problems. Uh, the union still got exposed in that space from time to time. But I do think it made a big impact on this game and helped the union get back some semblance of control in the first half. Yeah. How did, how much did you love too? It was like dribble fest for the center backs of Montreal. <laughs> Are you loving it? I love it so much. And we've seen that all year long under Wilfred yeah. Nancy, who I think has done a phenomenal job with this group. And maybe we'll talk more about that uh, later. Yeah. But Kamal Miller, especially, is a guy who loves to drive forward. And we've seen that over and over again this year. I haven't noticed it as much with the right center back, who in this game was Joel Waterman, uh, who's got a good story coming up through the, the CPL in Canada. 
he was also driving the ball forward and really getting involved. It was a fun back three from Montreal and just a fun performance from them in general. We got to watch them pick the Union apart, which is not the easiest thing to do. The Union have good defensive numbers. And I think first and foremost, they are a defensive team that likes to attack vertically. And a lot of their attacks are built off of their defensive work. So anytime we can get dribbling center backs, I, I'm all for it, Jordan. I would just say, though, and I, as I was watching this game, I knew you would love that, first of all. <laughs> Thank you. I knew you would love Thank that. Thank you. And I, I would say, even though Montreal had, oh, gosh, they had some really nice buildups. They had some good interchanging. You were just talking about the front three or that front triangle sure, players sure. and their, their wing backs. <laughs> they, they looked really good with the ball and they looked creative. But if you think about the the times they were actually threatening the goal, there weren't very many. Mm -hmm. And I think Philadelphia, I was just, as I was watching more and more, I was like, credit to Philly. Like, they know their strengths. They are good, even if they get broken down, at recovering into spaces where they know that they can win those the balls. And yeah, they gave up a lot of corner kicks in this game, but they're solid defensively on corner kicks most of the time. I know they give up a corner kick goal. But they're willing to let players send the ball in, especially a driven ball in the air, because they know how good they can, you know, the, the threats they have with Elliot and Glessness to just win that initial ball. So I, I don't know. I thought that Montreal was really good. But as the game went on, I was like, gosh, Philly is actually really good defensively, though. And that's a phenomenal point, Jordan. The goal you're referencing comes in the 33rd minute from Milievich. The Union win the ball in their half. Montero forces it forward like they did a lot in this game. The Union didn't look all that cohesive on the ball, which has been somewhat of a theme from them this season. The Union lose that that ball that Montero plays forward. Montreal get it. They go quickly in transition. They counter. They earn a corner. The corner kick's taken short. Mihailovic plays it to Milievich, the, the H combination there. And Milievich scores after taking a, a nice touch. So it's a nice goal from Montreal, but to your point, it does not come in open play. And Montreal's game, uh, game, not game winner, but their equalizer later on in this one, it's a 95th minute from Ibrahim. It's a, it's a cross from the left wing that comes in a moment where Montreal are just desperate to get a goal. So there's no right. real end product on all of this off beautiful, yeah, off of a throw in sequence on the, on the far side, the left side for Montreal. There's not a lot of end product from the possession. That, that, I think that's a fair summary of what, what you're getting at there. And, and for me, I was thinking about in this game, as as we watched Torres and Milievich and Mahalovic get on the ball over and over again and play this really fun soccer, I was thinking, why don't more teams do this stuff? Like, why aren't three teams just stacking, or why aren't teams just stacking three players who all like to drop in, have some ball winners in midfield, but also players who can progress and then have the width coming from the wingbacks? Like, why aren't teams doing that? And I think a big reason as to why they're not doing it is because you don't have someone who really loves to operate in the box on the field. Yeah. Right. And, and that doesn't completely True. explain why Montreal struggled to create chances. It like, like real definable chances in the final third, but it, it, it certainly explains why they maybe didn't get on the ball as much and really threaten in that space because mm -hmm. there's no number nine there. Mason Toy and Romo Kyoto are both out with, with injuries at this point. Kyoto might be coming back soon. Toy is out for the year, but there's no one to really occupy center backs. There's no focal point in the attack. The only fixed points in possession for Montreal were the back three, and, and the wingbacks and, and maybe the double pivot, right? The, the front three was completely fluid or, or the one, two, the, the three attacking players were really fluid here. And so I think that might have helped Montreal get into the final third, but maybe hurts them when they actually get into those spaces and it comes time to, to really put the ball in the back of the net. Totally.
Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree with that. And um, just to shift gears to Montreal defensively, yeah. I would just, I think the biggest thing that I noticed from Montreal throughout the whole entire game is when they press or when they're without possession, they do send those three players forward. The front three are high pressing yeah. and they're trying to force a long ball. And whether it's through on the ground, trying to break lines from the opposing team, or if it's in the air, it was Maciel and Piet winning. They won so many balls centrally, picking off the play and restarting an attack for the for their own team. Or I thought those two were crucial in the sustained possessions and the regains of possession for Montreal in this game. I'm completely with you. I think those players are hugely important to this team. Let's let's flip over to the Union quickly, because okay. I, I don't have a ton to say about them, honestly, in this game. Jordan, maybe you do, but at least I want to go through the goals, right? So Montreal get that opening goal in the first half. They're up one nothing, headed into halftime. And then we get an own goal from James Pentimas in the 63rd minute that, that Montreal put in the back of their own net. It's Montero who takes a free kick off of a Kai Wagner throw-in, and Montero takes takes that free kick, and Glesnes gets his head on it, hits the post, then it comes back off of Pentimus's leg. It's a really unfortunate situation for Montreal. I don't know how much. I'm not a goalkeeper, so I don't know exactly how much can be done there. Montreal on the sequence, though, they're 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 playing a high line as the free kick is taken, and it's man marking. Glesnes just sneaks past Waterman, and it's not the best. Uh, work on that defensive set piece there, Jordan. Yeah, but the ball in is just oh, like, it's beautiful. Read this <clears throat> it's exactly what you're trying to do in that situation. If it doesn't hit anybody, it's going in the back corner, and that's what it did. You know, it, by going off the post. I mean, it's not that much, but um, the precision on the ball really makes that play difficult no matter where that back line was for Montreal even if they were back a little bit that still is a dangerously threatening ball yes I completely agree um it's Mm -hmm. it's a nice ball in from Montero in that sequence I mentioned that that goal or the the foul that leads to that goal comes off of a throw-in and the same thing sort of happens in the 77th minute and we already talked about it happening on Montreal's equalizer late in stoppage time I don't know what was going on on throw-ins in this game but but the union's second goal their go-ahead goal Scored by Kai Wagner in the 77th. It was a handball or maybe a foul. I think it ended up being actually, I, I don't know. The commentary team couldn't foul. decide. I'm going with like, yeah, because I think the foot, I don't know. I, I still don't know <laughs> if it was a handball or a foul. But the other thing is, the, if it's a handball, this is why handball is so annoying, right? Because he was in such a natural position, like trying to, his hand was in a natural position. I don't think his foot was. Right. That was like coming up and cleating Bedoya. So maybe that's where the foul was. I don't know. Gosh. I, the handball rule is one of life's great mysteries. I'm just going to put it that <laughs> way. I I will never fully understand what is going on, nor do I understand really what happened on this play. But it ended up being Samuel <laughs> Piet that commits some sort of illegal action in the vicinity of Ali Bedoya after a throw-in. Again, throw-in. And so Kai Wagner steps up, takes the free kick and, and scores from it. And it's a beautifully taken free kick as well. Some nice set pieces from the Union on in this game. And it's 2-1 yeah. Union at that point. I don't know, Jordan, what is happening with throw-ins, but one one area of improvement I was going to, to posit for Montreal is just awareness in those sequences, right? I mean, that's the difference between three points and one point, really, in this game. Montreal had a lot of control here, and credit to the Union for fighting back and wrestling at least some control in dead ball situations away from Montreal because I don't know that they had the Union had a lot of life in open play in this game. No. No, they didn't. And I think that there I think teams recognize that there could potentially be a weakness for this four four two diamond playing against a three five or a three four three or a three five two. Sure, sure. Whatever that may be. Um I know that was something 
that other teams have found success in just watching the union play uh, against them. So, uh, but when you're talking about Montreal, like that's such a simple thing. You can't overcomplicate. Uh, and maybe the positioning, it's just starting positioning, knowing that there's a throw in, getting in a good proper position. So you're not reaching or um, shifting at full force, trying to, to make a tackle at the edge of your box and giving away silly free kicks. Pay attention, people. That's my message. Yeah, pay, attention, pay attention, guys. <laughs> um, so, so, Jordan, I said we, we might talk more about this Montreal team and, and the work that Wilfred Nancy has done. I want to do that mm-hmm. now, if that's okay with you. Can I say one more thing please, about Philly before we go do. there and end up? Um, I love Casper Shabilko's running. Yeah. He, at a point in this game, I wish, I, oh, I have the 14th minute. I wrote it down, actually. If, if you're, uh, forward and you're learning how to play watch what he does he gets the ball and he'll connect the line and automatically he's looking at like how he can play off of he's he's watching the positioning of the player that he's almost laying the ball off to and saying all right is their body position are they just going to switch the point of attack well then I'm going to stretch and go the opposite way to create space centrally so then when I run into that space it's going to be open because I've created space for myself his running off the ball is so it's really good, and it's a reason why he scores a lot of goals, especially in this system where they want to utilize that connection with the front runners, but then the space that they can create in between the two. And um, gosh, I just really, I've really enjoyed watching him, not even on the ball a lot of the time. It's what he does off the ball that I think is really interesting. He's a good player, and his movement yeah. does create opportunities for himself and for the players around him, which is so important in that shape, like you're mentioning, Jordan. There is there is width, and it, it doesn't come from any of the, the the traditional attacking players. It comes from the fullbacks or, or the wingbacks if they're in a back three. It really does involve a lot of important movements from the central players to create space. Um, I, I love that point. My my point that I wanted to sort of, I guess, end on or wherever this takes us is is how darn good Montreal are, but also really the point is how much better they are than last year, right? Yeah. Uh, I kind of talked I wrote about down this here at the bottom of my notes. Show is Wilfred Nancy your coach of the year? Ah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I love the question. And listeners, Jordan just just held up her notes to the camera so we can be sure that that is actually what she wrote. <laughs> coach of the year is an incredibly challenging one this year especially for me because a lot of a lot of coaches have done an excellent job uh Hernan Losada is someone we talked about a couple of episodes yeah. ago and I loop him and Nancy into a very similar conversation both coaches who have drastically drastically improved their teams DC United was pretty hopeless under Ben Olsen Montreal was hopeless last year and now these teams are both in the playoff field if the season ended today and even if they don't make the playoffs and I, I think they will and I think they should They've still put together just an incredible season based off of our expectations for them. I don't, I just don't have enough good things to say. I, I cannot, I can't, we don't have enough time for me to say all the good things I want to say about Montreal and the work that Wilfred Nancy has done yeah. this year. Uh, would you throw in Robin Fraser to that mix too? Because yes. I feel like yes. Colorado is pretty hopeless and they were under Fraser last year, right? And he, his ability to take what, that was and change it. I think that those three coaches, you know, when you talk about coach of the year, right? We, I think everybody thinks that Bruce Arena is going to win probably because yeah. of, you know, that's kind of how it goes. If you win the shield, you win coach of the year. Yeah. Bruce Arena is awesome. But I think that the way you and I are looking at it is like, take what you had. Like the revs made it to the Eastern conference final. Like it wasn't as if they were poor. 
And this, these other three teams are like, never in a million years would you say Montreal is going to be one of these teams who's not only competing to be, gosh, they right now they could be top four in the East yeah. if they win some of these last games. Yeah. They could be top four in the East. They could um, go from one of the worst teams in Major League Soccer who didn't have any sense of like what style they wanted to play to a very... You know, you can, from watching their games, you know how they're going to play. You know what they want to execute. They have a formation. They have, I think the biggest thing, Joe, is they never look rattled. Like in this game against Philly, they didn't look rattled when they went down. They were just like, all right, well, let's just keep going. There's a confidence about them that I think he's instilled. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm like, man, this guy's good. You can make a strong, compelling argument for Wilfred Nancy to be coach of the year. Right, just as you can do with Robin Frazier and Hernan Lasada and Bruce Arena, to be fair. There's a lot of, of quality contenders, and that's why it's hard for me to, to choose. I do think, though, Nancy, like I said, has an incredibly strong case. I looked at some of the numbers here because we've talked about the style and, and what we can see on the field. But a lot of the, the positive things we're talking about are borne out in the numbers as well. So last year in 2020, these are all uh, from FB Ref, just for reference. Last year, Montreal averaged 1.2 expected goals per 90 minutes, which was 20th in MLS. They, this year, they're averaging 1.4 expected goals per 90. So that's, that's an improvement in its 10th in MLS. That's, yeah. that's major. Looking at the defensive side of things. They allowed 1.68 expected goals per 90 minutes last year, which was 25th in Major League Soccer. They were second to last in that metric. This year, they're only allowing 1.3 expected goals per 90 minutes. That's a .38 differential, which is 11th in Major League Soccer. That's huge, right? They've improved in their ability to create chances, even though we didn't see a ton of that in this game. We talked about that already. They've improved, improved, generally speaking, in their ability to create chances, and they've improved massively in their ability to stop other teams from creating chances. That's how you become a good team. Those are the most important two things that you can do in soccer. And Montreal have improved in both of those metrics. They also have become a much more aggressive pressing team. Jordan, you mentioned that earlier, and I love that. In 2020, they were second. They're 22nd, excuse me, in MLS in pressures in the attacking third. This year, they're ninth. They're more aggressive. They have a defined style of play. They've improved in a number of different metrics. They've improved on the eye. They're easy on the eye now. And that's not the most important thing. But it's nice for us watching these games. You can make an incredibly strong argument for Wilfred Nazi with the talent he has, even relative to Hernan Losada, as in love as I am with a lot of the work that Losada has done. You can say that Montreal don't have as much top-end talent as D.C. do. And D.C. is certainly not one of the most talented teams in the league. But if you compare these rosters, I'm probably taking D.C.'s roster. If if you don't tell me really where these players are coming from or what they do under their current managers and the style of play and all that jazz. So, I again, so much credit to Nancy and the work that he's done with this team. And credit to Montreal and the players as well. They've stepped up. They have some nice additions in, in Milievich especially. who This was his first start. We didn't mention that. But this was his first start in Major League Soccer. There's a lot to love about this Montreal team. There's a lot to like about the Union as well, coming off of that yes, Supporters' yeah. Shield last year, of course. This just wasn't their best game, and I'm sure we'll talk more about them as the playoffs come uh, come closer and closer. But, man, what a fun game and, and what a fun yeah, team fun. this Montreal team is. Yeah, it was really fun. And, um, you know, rainstorm and all. It yeah, had all yeah. the elements. Good goal celebration, <laughs> some good slides. The last, like, literally at the last moment. Yep. The goal between Kisa and Ibrahim Ibrahim uh, was so good um, and determined. I, I loved it, and so I think that was a it was a good one to choose. And I'm glad we we broke it down here. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Jordan. Thank you so much for joining me and for talking tactics in Montreal and Philadelphia and all that good stuff with me. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Joe. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll be back again soon. Thank you.